0: Welcome to season 3 of the ASCA Viewpoints podcast. The podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Alexandra Hughes, your Viewpoints host. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the ASCA Viewpoints podcast. As always, I'm your host Alexandra, and wow, um I hope everyone's doing well. I hope this podcast episode finds everyone well, whether it's the morning, the afternoon, the night, you are getting ready in the morning, you're working out, you're living your best life. You're eating ice cream, finally watching Tiger King, as I suggested that you did a long time ago, wherever this episode finds you, I hope it finds you safe, healthy, and well. Um, I want to take some time to just thank everybody for the overwhelming support of the last episode that I did on this show. As everyone is aware, I like to feature different voices from our field and just get different viewpoints. And the last episode featured myself and my viewpoint and, um, it was a lot. It was a lot. It was emotional. It was raw. It was real. It was it was tremendously scary for me to put out. But I want to make sure that I just thank everyone for all of the support, all of the love, all of the reach outs, all of the resources, all of just everything that that episode inspired. I realize, as I've heard from a lot of people, that just having these episodes once a month is not enough. And that especially during these times, people really want to have these conversations about social justice, about race, about equity, about all of these things and how this is really a good platform to learn and to have that. And so I think maybe for some time, uh, that's what I'm going to work on. I want to give the people what the people want. And if the people want this, then, hey, let's work with it. Um... That being said, last week, I did a webinar for ASCA titled Systemic Racism is My Office a of Contributor, in which a lot of these things were being discussed and in which I really asked our practitioners in our field to think about uh, the roles that their office play. And I provided a, a myriad of resources and questions and roles and just different things to ask and uh, things to consider moving forward. And I think that that was kind of the jumping off point. And i I'm hoping that this episode and the episode that I have scheduled for everyone for uh, this week, it's going to be an episode that takes that step or that conversation, rather, a step forward. And I am extremely excited about that. So I have um, a guest here, and I think that everyone's going to love her, love her energy, love what she's talking about. And her name is Michaela Falwell. And Michaela was so gracious to come onto our show and actually provide even more questions, more resources, um, more things for us to think about as practitioners, as we kind of work through um, the, the climate of our country at this time, and how do we ensure that our offices are actually not contributing to to these things? And what can we do over the summer to reevaluate? And how can we make sure that we're putting our best step forward? So without further ado, let me introduce our guest, Michaela Falwell, to everyone. So Michaela Falwell Pronouns she, her, and hers has served as the adjudication coordinator for sexual violence and sexual harassment cases since August of 2019 after joining the Office of Student Support and Judicial Affairs as a judicial officer in December 2018 at UC Davis. Previously, Michaela worked as the assistant director for the Office of Student Conduct and Civility Education at Townsend University, where she heard high-level conduct cases and served as an investigator and hearing officer for Title IX cases. Michaela's career in student affairs began in residence life at the University of Arizona and American University. Michaela is a proud alumna of the University of Tennessee's College Student Personnel Program, and Michaela also graduated from San Francisco State University. With a degree in criminal justice studies. Michaela's student conduct work is guided by social justice, student development, and care for students. And I can guarantee you that everyone here will be able to listen to this episode and take something valuable away. I know I did. I learned a lot just listening and talking with her. And I encourage everyone to reach out to Michaela. She provides her contact info. I will put it in the description box if you want to hear more, if you would like to connect with her. Um, And yeah, I think I everyone's going to like it. So with that being said, be on the lookout for more things this summer. As we work through these issues, we work through these topics. Um, I'm not going to say that I'm going to have the the answer for everything, but if nothing else, hopefully it will be a starting place for all to move forward for all of us to move forward collectively please stay safe. Please stay healthy. Please remember we are still in the middle of a pandemic and COVID-19 is real. And I will connect with everyone soon. Thanks for listening. Welcome to our show. Uh, my name is Alexandra Hughes, as you all know, and we have a very special guest today, Michaela. Michaela Falwell, how are you doing? You know,
1: I'm doing okay. Not great. Not good. Just to, just okay, to be honest. Um, I think all things considered, but yeah.
0: Okay. Well, we like honesty, um, and we definitely want honesty on this show, so I think that is the most important thing. Well, I truly appreciate um, you coming on the show, you coming at such a short notice, uh, really just to come here and to talk. I definitely appreciate your time and just energy, uh, especially in this world that we're living in now. So I think the first thing that I kind of want to ask you, um, you know, before we even get into this, we are still in the middle of a pandemic. Like, I think like we've forgotten about <laughs> that part. So how are you doing Absolutely. in the age of COVID-19? Like, Like, are you safe? Are you healthy? Like, first, let me start there.
1: Yeah. Thank you for asking that. And I, of course, I appreciate the invitation to come and speak with you today. Um, you know, I'm safe and I'm healthy and I really appreciate that. My department is still working from home and, um, yeah, I've just tried to maintain healthy boundaries. And, uh, you know, it is a challenge, I think, just to work from home and to not have that separation. So I'm just trying to do basic things like hold my normal office hours, go for a walk after work to create that separation when I would normally leave the office and walk away. Um, yeah, so COVID-19. Yeah, I'm doing OK,
0: honestly, with that. Um yeah, but it's a weird. It, we're in weird times. We are in weird times. Twenty twenty. This is not the year that I expected. I want to unplug no. twenty twenty. Uh, go back to twenty nineteen. Try replugging in twenty twenty. Um, you know when we used to take our phones and put it in rice, like when they got wet because it was like messed up. And you, <laughs> I just want to put twenty twenty in rice and leave it for like three days and come back and just let the phone restart itself. Like that's that's genuinely just how I feel. Okay. So I'm let's not do, sure that's going to work, but, uh, it's a strategy. I mean, I mean, you could try at this point, it's much better than some of the things people are doing. And so I'm just yeah. going to leave it at that. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to say that. So Michaela, can you please tell our listeners, um, just about your student affairs journey? How did you get to your current role about you, whatever you're willing to share on a recorded podcast? Um, we would definitely appreciate that.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I think that the universal thread in for folks who do student affairs work is that none of us grew up thinking, oh, my gosh, I want to be a student affairs professional, let alone student conduct folks. Um, Just because it's not something that you realize exists even before you set foot on a college campus. Um, when I was an undergrad at San Francisco State, I was an RA and then I became a senior RA and then I was an assistant area coordinator and everyone um, told me that I would become a resident director. I was like, absolutely not. I'm not going to be a professional RA. That's not in my cards. Um, and I was so wrong about that. And I can get to that a little bit later, but um Yeah, I, you know, I decided in my junior year, uh, I was a criminal justice studies major. And in my junior year, I worked with an organization called Project Rebound at San Francisco State that allows previously, or that helps previously incarcerated individuals um, get into SF State and also succeed when they're there. And it was that experience, honestly, even though like I loved being an RA, I love building a sense of community, it was that experience because I wanted to do social justice work that allowed me to realize that even though we consider in a lot of areas, education to be the great equalizer, we have so much work to do in our institutions and, um, and in student affairs too. And so I was like, you know what, this is, this is my calling. I see how I can make a difference. And I've never let those experiences, even though it was like a short period in my life, leave me and I think about the students that I got to work with, the scholars who were previously incarcerated, um, I think about them often still. And so that really was what made me say, you know, I want to go into student affairs. And so I, um, when I was choosing grad schools, I chose the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, knowing that it would be super different Mm -hmm. Uh, from my San Francisco. Yeah. For my San Francisco state experience. Um, and so I moved to Knoxville from San Francisco and it was everything I thought it was going to be. And sometimes a little bit more, Um, more. take that. Yeah. Take that for what it was, but, uh, or what that is. But, um, I, I really, I did love my experience at the university of Tennessee and, um, it challenged me and it changed me and it helped me communicate cross culturally. Um, But it was it was a challenge. But but I wouldn't change that for anything. And I love my time on Rocky Top. And after that, I knew I wanted to be a resident director. So there we go. I was wrong. Um, And that's probably my favorite job that I ever had. So out of grad school, I was a community director at the University of Arizona. And then after that, I worked as a resident director at American University. And I will say that, like, being a resident director or community director was probably my favorite job that I ever had. Just because I got to live in community with folks, I think it really prepared me to work in student conduct because I was being, I was a first responder to incidents. I got to see how this played out. Whenever I receive an incident report now, I can literally picture it. Um, You know, I remember what it's like to, like, knock on that door and hear the clinks behind the door. Or whatever the case might be. So it's given me a, an interesting perspective that I think everyone in res life shares and can relate to, um, or can, yeah, can relate to, but I think, um, When I decided that I wanted to transition out of residence life, it was A, because of balance and B, um, because I wanted to continue to do this work. And I knew that there were issues in student conduct and I felt that calling. And so I um, ended up being an assistant director for student conduct and civility education at Towson University and um, and I love my experience there and then after that um, I took like a little bit of a career path turn that I thought I wouldn't make um, but my partner got a job as an assistant director in housing actually at UC Davis and I decided that I would come along and I knew that, UC, or that student conduct was my functional area of choice so I applied for a judicial officer position within um, the Office of Student Support and Judicial Affairs at UC Davis and uh and I got that job of course and um and yeah thank you. And then I uh I started that role and um then a little bit after I arrived another position became open in my office and it was a coordinator um or adjudication coordinator for sexual violence and sexual harassment cases. So I applied for that job, got that job. And that's the role that I'm currently in. Um, Yeah. And so kind of a long path to get here, but it's all interconnected and I wouldn't change a thing.
0: Well, I absolutely love it. And I just love hearing your story. I can also resonate as a former housing person myself. I think Uh, it definitely... You know, it definitely makes a difference now being on the, as I say now, I'm on the eight to five side, not the five to eight (laughs) side. I like to sleep. I wake up. I sit in my office or I guess now my home and I say, oh man, at 3am that happened. You were at the door. Like, oh wow. But I feel like I can say that because just like you, I can literally put myself back in those shoes. And I just think it's so important and it helps so much having that perspective because I understand the rules, why the RA knocked three times, why we had to wait for the police officer to get here. Like all of those different things, I I'm here for it. So I definitely, I love your story. You definitely have a lot of experience. And so I think that just holds weight and it shows in your passion as well. <clears throat> so Thank you, Michaela. <clears throat> I know that you wrote a post in the ASCA Women in Student Conduct page, and it was a call out for people to examine their catch-all policies. I'm going to go ahead and read the post for our uh, listeners, if you're okay with that, okay? Yeah, for sure. All right. So as it says, I have to clear my voice. Okay. As our colleagues of color, students, and communities continue to be in pain and fear, what are you doing to ensure that your process is not a duplication of a justice system that is clearly not working for everyone? Are you examining your office's application of catch-all policies, like disruption policies, that are applied to gray area issues? Do you plan to examine the use of language within our offices, titles, and policies? How will you continue to be a partner to your campus and local police departments while protecting the safety of your community? Do you have a system for a following up, when a student tells you that their encounter with the police made them feel unsafe or the treatment that they received was not aligned with campus expectations. What about when a student reports that type of treatment from a colleague within your own office? How can we ensure that our sanctions actually educate students and are viewed as an educational opportunity instead of solely a means for holding students accountable and being viewed as a punishment? We have made great strides in our functional area, but there is still so much work to be done. If you are making or have made positive changes on your campus, I would love to hear them. If you're struggling in your work or in your office, please know that you can reach out to me. And I'm always willing to be a listening ear. And most importantly, to my colleagues of color, who are making space to do this work every day while navigating your own safety and hurt. I see you and I'm here for you in whatever way you need support. That was, I think, the best thing that I have read in... Probably 2020. Um, <laughs> so, the first thing that I want to do is just say, like, thank you for this. Because I know personally, as a Black woman, when I am constantly, <laughs> as the episode that got put out uh, it's for the first of this month, I'm constantly asking these questions. I'm constantly, I'm very passionate about it. But to see other people be passionate about it, as well, and to put in such, I mean, I couldn't have written something better myself. So that's the first thing that I just want to say. Um, what made you do that? What made you think about that? Yeah, well,
1: I mean, these thoughts are always on my mind, not just in this time right now, when we're processing through the loss of black lives to police violence, right? And, and I wanna highlight that this is a perpetual issue. So, um, you know, the fact is that these issues obviously have not been solved and we have a system that isn't working. And I chose um, to work in student conduct because I believe that the work that we do every day matters. And, um, I also knew from day one that the way that we actually do this work makes all the difference. And we have a responsibility to ourselves, our colleagues, our campus community to do better when we know better and to look at our work in a critical lens. Um, And I just wanted to put not necessarily a call out, but a call in um, for folks who do this work to think about these issues a little bit more. Um, And I want to address it like, Social justice isn't a passion area for me. I really look at it as a critical component of our work. And if you are, if that's a deficit for you, that's something that you have to work on. And we're all continuing to do this work. It doesn't stop after a couple of trainings where you can say like, oh, I'm good. Um, And so I really, you know, I think about this all the time. And one of the ways that we can make a lot of change is through our actual offices and the work that we're doing on a daily basis. I'm always conscious of the fact that student conduct work is historically rooted in a criminal justice system And that's not grounded in student development and learning Um, it's just it's not any way in any way shape or form and it's also it's not even that it's broken It wasn't built to serve folks of color, right? Um, neither were our institutions because It wasn't that long ago. I mean, literally, I think a lot of us have parents who were around when our institutions were segregated. Um, And so just thinking about processing through that and how do we make a change? Um, And our institutions are ever-changing too. So there are folks who have come into our institution who have held positions for a long time. And maybe when they came in, they weren't intending to serve such a diverse student population, but we have to challenge ourselves to make changes to really meet our students' needs. Um, and like I said, I'm always educating myself on how students' identities and experiences inform how they perceive and navigate the student conduct process. Um, and that Student conduct uh, processes and us as practitioners should be tools for attention and engagement and education rather than barriers. And I think when I hear colleagues, whether it be on my own campus or... Um, on other campuses that don't do student conduct work, say, wow, I can never do that work. I think we're, we might be missing the mark because they are not seeing us as doing the same work as them where we're trying to retain folks. And I, I really look at when we hold students accountable um, and we have conversations with them that are meant to educate them. In that moment, we want more for them than they wanted for themselves. When they did whatever they did, that got them to our office. So how can we help continue this conversation and um, move them forward? You know what I mean, and and help them stay at our institutions. There are so many times when um, incidents are not a point of no return. There are incidents where it's like, yo, I don't think that this is the space for you right now. You got to take some time away, or maybe time away forever. But most of what we do is educating folks so that they can make different decisions. But um, I made that post because I believe. Our processes continue to be a duplication of the criminal justice system. I think um, when events like the death of George Floyd, or let me correct that, it's not just a death, it's a murder. So I I would just want to name that for what it is. Um, The murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery are given national attention. Folks feel called to um, make changes on a national level and they feel like, uh, and sometimes folks feel like they don't know where to start, or they're just removed from the issues. So they don't do anything. And um, I wrote that post because I want to highlight that there are things that we can do within our sphere of influence and within our daily work that make a huge difference. Um, There are hundreds of issues that we could identify and action items that we can, um, create a list for ourselves. For example, um, if we look at our work with the critical lens and my post was just a really short list of small things that were on my heart and mind at the time. Um, but there are bigger issues and there's a lot more that we can do than what I just put into, paragraph online so I I just want to you know I want to call folks in to do this work with me um, and to continue to think about these issues um, and how we're connected to them it's not just when I leave work I'm gonna put a post on social media and say like hey this is really important but it's like how am I doing this work in my day-to-day as a student conduct practitioner
0: yes I vote you for president um, and I mean, I mean, like, yes, everything you just said. Yes. Um, I don't know if I could have said it any better myself. Pretty sure that like you, everything like emotionally, like you put into actually actionable birds. And I love that. And there's some things that you said that I think people really need to listen to. One of the things that you said is that social justice isn't just a passion anymore. It is a critical part of the functional area that we do. And that is, that is the piece. That is the way that we need to look at this work. It is not an option. It is not a diversity class that we take once in grad school that, you know, we learn about a little bit of history and we go from there and we never look at it again. You said it, it is not, um, you know, there, there aren't enough uh, certificates and, and things that we can give people to just take it and say, okay, it's done. At Gearing last year, um, Katika Harris, she is our incoming, after Martha, our new president, or president-elect. I should have the right terminology for that, right? So, like, she'll be our president next year. Um, actually said something in her session that she did, and she talked about the word of not cultural competencies, but cultural humility, right? And mm-hmm. humility in the, in the aspect of understanding that none of us are ever going to reach competence. And I think that's so important for us to remember. We're never, and that's all of us, even me as a black woman, I have the lived experiences of racial identity in this country, but there are eight, whole bunch of marginalizations, right? And privileges. Privileges I have, marginalizations I have, but looking at what that, what that, what that looks like even in my own personal life, I have a privilege in one area, you know, that someone else may not have and understanding that I will still have to constantly do the work to learn. And that is okay. Um, You acknowledge the fact that our criminal justice system really is the foundation for the work that we do in higher education and student conduct. And I don't think people realize how truthful that is. Our job in student conduct, and I often say this, I say, I don't know if I'd have a job in a different country. Now we actually do have some colleagues in Canada that I've actually spoken to and they're fantastic. And I want to get them on the show um, in the future because just their laws and things are different. Right. But I've always said that I'm like, oh, I don't know if I could move to a different country and do my job because my job is rooted in policy which is rooted in United States of America law. And so if you yes. understand that we are kind of a, like I say, a quasi form or a smaller, uh, smaller structure of our justice system, and we're saying our justice system, there's something wrong with that. Is it possible that there's something wrong with our, our justice system or our student conduct process in education? And Absolutely. that's what I don't think people realize. It's, it's related. It's the same thing.
1: It is. We are connected to these issues. And I think sometimes we like to think that it's not our stink, right? That it's not that we are disconnected, that we are educators, but we need to actively inspect our processes, inspect the work that we're doing, question what we do every day so we can make sure that if you don't want to be a duplication of the criminal justice process, then we are actively working to dismantle that on our own campuses, in our offices. Um, That's that's our work, right? That, and uh, real quick too, no matter what identities you hold as an individual, when we're working in our offices, we hold power, we have power and privilege, right? Mm -hmm. We have the ability to remove a student from our campus, to make a decision that changes the outcome of their whether they're able to continue on our campus or not and when we hold folks accountable like that that's literally you know, we have to do better to partner with students to figure out what that looks like to create that relationship so that they're also holding themselves accountable. And it's not something that we're doing to them. But the fact that we have the ability to do things to their education, to remove them from our campus, that's power and privilege. And we have to think about how are we applying that? Mm-hmm. I-
0: I say that all the time. I think so many people come and say, wow, you have the, the ability to suspend someone, the ability to expel someone. And I said, yes, but to whom, to whom is given much responsibility, much is expected. And this idea of saying, look, if I understand that I can suspend or expel you, whoever you are, student, let's look at two sides of that. The first one being, what did your parents sacrifice to get you to be able to go to college, right? We're looking at I mean, parents that have given up everything, that have gone back to work, that have worked hours, that have—I mean, whatever yes. that, whatever those—and I—I I use parents loosely because that could be a village to support, you know, whoever that student yeah. is. Okay, then it what has that, everyone hurt. Right yeah. and to what whoever that is to support them? Who? I mean, I know people that have done literally fish fries in the backyard to raise money to send a child to college. Right? I, what is that student themselves? What have they sacrificed? Right to be there. And I also say, if we're going to suspend or expel someone, how will that impact their future generations? Because we know that if we say that education is this great equalizer, which I argue it isn't, right? But if we say that it is part of that step, okay, how is that suspension or expulsion going to... In, impact their future and their career and their generations coming after. It is a lot of power. And I don't think until we think about it in that sense, can we truly honestly say, are we making the best decisions for our students? Now, like you said, there are things that happens, happen. And I, OK, got to go. Right. I'm not saying that it isn't right or it doesn't hold space and that it's not a learning experience because that is one. But are we really assessing the opportunities that we're giving to all of our students? Are we giving people certain people second chances and not those second chances to others?
1: Yes. So much truth in that. And what did that education look like before? Like what efforts have we made as a community to educate folks before these incidents happen? How are we, uh, I have so many questions and so many things that we need to work on and um, just actively tear apart um, in our work. And I think that now is a great time to start doing some of that. If you haven't been thinking about it, or if you have been thinking about it, ask yourself all those questions again. Um, We're never, we, This work never stops. It never stops. Students always find new and creative ways to like violate policies and things like that. But like we also um, find new and creative ways to make our policies work, sometimes in ways that aren't equitable, Um, sometimes in ways that don't match the education and our own um, philosophies that we want to have, stu- or that we want to um, impose upon students, right? And so we need to think about how can we call ourselves in and really do this work as educators. Really, like, really think about when we show up every day. Like, are we doing the student affairs work? Are we being educators? Are we development developing folks? Um, we have so much work to do, and I'm excited by that. I'm challenged by that, um, and it. it needs to be done over time. It can't just be that you went to one staff meeting or you, you did a day-long um, retreat with your staff and you work through some issues, you've identified some things and you're like, we're gonna write a new policy. It's like, it's not just policies. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly. It's, it's, it's actionable things. So let's talk about that because I want to give people an example. Um, I'm sure people are listening. And if people don't necessarily know or if this may be the first time that they're they're thinking about it, I, I'm so excited. So let's take a policy. Uh, one of the ones that I like to talk about is, for example, the use of a zero tolerance policy, right? And I like to use that one because I think that's a good example of asking, is this policy really equitable for all students? right? And, and how does yep. that work? So I know that I am a big proponent of saying, mm, I'm not a fan of zero tolerance policies. And the reason for that, and for those people who don't know, Zero tolerance policies essentially came about um, in this era of drug free schools, gun free schools, as a response to the fact that there were a lot of things happening right in this country. Now, let me make myself clear. There is no place for guns in a school. There is no place or there are no place drugs. None of these things do not belong in a school. I am not condemning. I'm not condoning it at all. Uh, but I want to look at that because the purpose of zero tolerance policies at the time was to account for those things that do not belong. But what happened mm-hmm. over time was that funding, and we still have it to this day, funding for our institutions, and, and this is also a K through 12 system, right, came from Uh, looking at how schools were following these zero tolerance policies, right? If they had school resource officers, uh, how many people they were suspending in that disciplinary way. Administrators had the autonomy to make the decision in the way that they wanted to, but they were choosing to suspend people uh, from school for reasons that were not the original reasons of these zero tolerance policies, but for things like talking back, for dress code violations, for a myriad of things that had absolutely nothing to do with what the original reason for these policies were. And so I look at, there's still some institutions, and even my institution has a zero tolerance policy, It says, if you are found with drugs on campus, you will automatically be, um, it's like suspended or suspension of rights and privileges. Um, mm-hmm. I believe our system is actually going through an update. And when I looked at the model policy um, that they came out for people, I don't know if it's actually going to pass, but in the draft that they have, they actually took that out. So I'm extremely happy about that. Awesome. But yeah. we'll see We'll see what that looks like. I'll have to give you an update. But right now, you know, what they're saying is it's it's, it's zero tolerance. So how can something like that negatively impact and not be equitable for all students involved?
1: Yeah, I mean, so many ways, I think the issue with that is it removes the autonomy of a, a person to look at a situation and to make an assessment on it, to look at personal circumstances, to look at what actually happened. And um, one of my former colleagues who was my supervisor, her name's Regina, she um, does this work too. She did Ooh, one of Oh, hi these Regina, shout out to, talk- to Regina. Yeah. <laughs> um, she taught me this in a way that makes a lot of sense which is like it's not a question of whether they violated a policy or not that is completely like that that is you either violated the policy or you didn't but where we have the flexibility and the ability to um meet students needs is through sanctioning right and so when you have these zero tolerance policies what you're essentially doing is not listening to people's stories um, and it makes me think about the folks who are not heard, who are hurting, who are, you know, like I think about drugs, for example, you're right that it doesn't, they don't have a great place on our college campus. We have the responsibility to address that. But at the same time, we know that there are folks with substance abuse issues or who are using as like, um, not the best coping mechanism. There are definitely better ones out there, but do we have the ability as student conduct folks to help folks through that, to educate them, to give them resources, to allow them to have a second chance. And so when we have these zero tolerance policies, we're effectively moving people from our institute, we're moving people from our institutions who have a lot of promise. There are things where I think, um, even in like the worst case scenario, like a gun on campus, for example, Our process, like, it's still very possible that the majority of individuals who have any sort of weapon on campus will be removed, even without that zero tolerance policy. But what you do when you create a zero tolerance policy is you don't have any room for addressing a specific situation. Um, Yeah. And, and individual circumstances. So like you, I am not a fan and I'm really thankful that your um, system is removing that from your policies. And, and I hope that other folks do the same. Mm -hmm. Or at Um, least
0: think about it. Right. And what, what does that look like? And so it allows one of the things I know someone's asked me in the past and I said, well, Alexandra, um, and the same thing that I had to do, if our policy says suspension, How do you how do you get around that? Luckily, my policy says suspension or suspension of rights and privileges. So that allowed me to be able to still maintain consistency with each situation, but to look at the elements right and hear that student's story to say, okay, suspension of rights and privileges. What does that look like? for our students. And so that was kind of the the good thing that I think a lot of places and institutions were looking at too, you know, because changing those policies mm-hmm. and how that works. But I think that's where I have to ask people to get creative. Right. I need yeah. I have to ask people to say this summer, right. Since I know, um, uh, Patients Brian, Dr. Patience Brian, and I, we did a webinar, uh, was that last month? My months, my dates they're, they're all running together. But it talked about being an asset on your campus. And what are things that like people can do to show right now that they are our assets? Well, I mean, you can say, look, look at what's going on in the country of the United States of America at this current time. I saw on the news last night that all 50 states had protests. All Fifty states. So part of that says, "Okay, let's let me show you how I'm useful in the context and climate of today's America. Let me take our policy this summer. Let's really look at this with the critical lens to see if we are really how these how how the words are. You know, words mean things, right? For all of my read podcast yeah. fans out here, um, how are we explaining these things to students? Are we giving them? sanctions that will allow them to learn and to move forward and to be better individuals and actually teach them why, like, uh, I guess, Regina, like you talked about it said policy is easy. You did or You didn't do it. Did you, or did you not? Yeah. We now have the responsibility and the weight to ensure that we are creating a better future with our students because they are our future doctors, our lawyers, our artists, our, our engineers, our Just citizens, right? And so we have to make sure that we are creating a better future with them and they know how to go out into this world and things that are right and wrong.
1: Yeah. And one of the cool things about working in student conduct, too, is that we have the ability to hold folks accountable to that education, right? So when we have a sanction, for example, we can track that. We can say, did you engage in this work? What did you learn? And continue that conversation. And even after we've assigned a sanction, we can still provide additional resources. You know, it doesn't, and maybe they're, they're not held accountable to completing that, but It's like, so based on what you're sharing with me, here are some things that you can continue to do to keep learning. Right. Um, And so we can continue that conversation on with them and really develop relationships with students. Um, You know, I hate when people say like a measure of us doing our work effectively is that people don't like us. Like, that's not true. We are not in the position where... You know, if, if you feel like everyone on your campus doesn't like you, then that's a bigger question. And you have to really inspect that within yourself and within how you're... Um, how you're operating in those spaces. So, you know, I think for the most part, like we need to call students in as our partners. We want to educate them. And so what does that look like to build those authentic, genuine relationships where we're investing in folks? And it's cool that we have the measures to hold them accountable to that education that we want them to have and we want them to want to have. Um, And so when we partner with folks to create sanctions, for example, those are things that they've committed to. So it's not just us saying, like, hey, you didn't do this sanction. It's like, hey, you committed to this. And, and I have a question, like, what, what's going on? Like you you identified this as a good learning opportunity for you. We talked about this and now it's not happening. And like, I want this for you, and you wanted this for yourself. So um, and really, yeah, let's, I love let's that. build
0: relationships with our students. And it's true. We can we can re we can change the way our office is viewed. And I think that is the biggest let We are all partners in this. And I think also partners with other people on campus as well, right? And you're talking about it. If Mm -hmm. the campus is viewing you as the office that everyone hates, I think everybody understands that there's policies, right? I don't think that any person, even students, students know when they sit there and they say, yeah, I I put the policy in front of them. They're like, oh, yeah, it does say I can't have that. I'm not making this up. It's right there on paper. They get it. Again." It's now how, after that realization, how do I, as the conduct administrator, sit there and say, okay, we can do this in two directions. I can make you a partner and we can go down this road of education together, right? Or I can go Mm -hmm. in another way where I'm not effectively impacting you, right? And that's where it's wrong. And we want to make sure we're creating those partnerships with our students. So I love it. And I think that if we look at it like that, we can do that now. One thing that I wanted to talk about with you um, is looking at where can people, and I think I need to, uh, I'll have to do like a link um, because there's a lot of stuff online. There's so many resources for people online, right? If we talked about the fact that, hey, this isn't just one diversity class that you take or, you know, in college, how do people who say, okay, I've heard you, I've heard you, Michaela, I've heard you, Alexandra, I want to start doing this work. How do I go about learning this work? How do I go about doing this work? What what do they do? Where do they start?
1: Yeah. Well, I think one thing I want to acknowledge is that folks are smarter than they give themselves credit for. I think sometimes we allow ourselves to opt out of this work and we act like we don't understand what's going on. We are consumers of media, right? And so we have to be thoughtful about what are we following? What are we looking at? What are we hearing? Who are our colleagues? Um, and be thoughtful about like who's in your circle. If you go to a church and it's all white folks, if, you, if all of your friends are white folks, if all of... Um, your colleagues are white folks. Like we, there are some questions there in a really diverse society that why, why is that, you know, and and to think about how do we let other folks in? And part of it is um, making sure that we are exposed to different viewpoints. So I think part of it starts with just educating yourself and, and then asking really important questions. I mean, as far as our work goes, there are dozens of questions that, um, we can ask ourselves and just to really think about and reflect on and not just ask ourselves, but then ask ourselves why. And so one of the things that I'm a big fan of is asking ourselves why, like five times. And that's something that I learned in leadership, not applicable to social, or it wasn't about social justice issues, but that's the same thing. So if you say, um, you know, when I, when I pull numbers at the end of the year, it looks like the majority of the folks that we met with for, and found responsible for disruptive behavior or that we suspended were folks of color. Why? You know, And then break that down further. So when you have that answer and say, so why is that? And, and, and just keep working through it that way. That's what I mean by we're smarter than we think we are. So we have a responsibility to do everything in our power to engage in this work to think critically um, because we know more than we give ourselves credit for. And if we continue to ask ourselves questions and do this difficult work, I think we'll find some answers. And the reality is too that um, it's like you said, it's not someone else's responsibility to educate you. So it's not the training. It's not even the presence of folks of color within your office. I only brought that specific of asking if everyone in your office is a white person, for example, or a white female, for example, or a white woman, for example, thinking about why that is. Um, and, and not bringing folks in to hope that they're going to be the band-aid or, um, you know, change your policies, like not relying on folks, but why don't folks want to be there? You know what I mean? Or why aren't you allowing folks to be in that space? So really thinking critically just about our offices, our processes, and um, I have about I have hundreds of questions that we could ask ourselves, and I can go over some of them with you if you want. But yeah, let's, um, let's
0: give people a couple. Yeah. Let's give them just a couple to see. You know, what are some some questions that you can ask yourself? You know, whether these are things that you know um, are in regard to policies that need to be changed, the way it impacts people. Um, let's give people some, some examples. Sure.
1: So one thing I think about, and this is a really simple one, are our policies up to date or are they antiquated? Were they created and, and um, written before your institution became more diverse, before you started serving first gen students, you know, and and how how much have they actually been changed since they were initially written? Like we have that responsibility. Are our policies clear? When we say things like disruptive um behavior, for example, that's one of those gray area policies that I think can be really challenging to look at the application of that. Um, and, And I think sometimes that's one of those that we make it fit when it doesn't, when it wasn't necessarily intended to address that specific issue. So is that student then being placed in the position to agree that they violated a policy when we didn't even write it for that purpose? Um, And then how are policies communicated to students, right? We know that these policies exist. Most of them I, I would say are common sense. There are certain ones though that you wouldn't know and I think about academic integrity. That's a lot of what we do at UC Davis. Some of those things students wouldn't know unless you tell them, like, for example, about posting a professor's um, course content online. Unless the professor told you about that, you might be a little bit confused, especially when you see it happening so often. So who are those folks are being reported for that and why? Um, And how are you holding them accountable? And then do you find yourself stretching policies to apply to different issues that they weren't intended to cover? That's really related to that gray area issue. Are staff and faculty being held to the same standards as your students? Um, And why or why not? Um, How are your policies actually being enforced? Are... The reported parties disproportionately uh, scholars of color on your campus or a specific student population. And why is that? Um, we can think about who is actually reporting incidents on your campus uh, and do marginalized folks feel safe to report incidents to your office. Um, And so, you know, and these are easy ones to look at um, as far as who's actually being reported with most of our conduct systems, unless it's a homegrown one. And even then you can probably still pull these numbers, but that's where assessment can really get to the heart of some of these issues. And you can have a good place to start and then ask why after you figure out that's an issue. Um, what does police involvement look like when they respond to incidents on campus that are later reported to your office, or when they're not reported to your office? Um, but you know, and what does your relationship look like with the police on campus? Um, does your office, and I asked this in that post, does your office have a process for reporting um, when an inc- when a student has an interaction with the police that they, that's problematic um, and that they've shared with you. And of course, there are always two sides to the story, but we have the opportunity and the responsibility to bring that forward. Do we have a process for that? And if you don't have a process or you haven't thought about that until you're faced with having to make that decision, that's too late. Right? We need it. We can't just be responsive to these issues. We have to think about this before these things happen. Um, in residence life, in particular, how are we training our student staff and our professional staff to respond to issues? And are they actually responding in the way that they were trained to? Um, does a student have a different experience in our process if they have an advisor? And then what if their advisor is an attorney? So, thinking about access to the resources. Like, um, Yeah. And privilege. Absolutely. Um, and, and what's that outcome for them? Is it different? And we have to really ask ourselves that, do I speak differently in my meetings? If I know that you have an advisor, that's an attorney. Um, and if so, you got to really break that down and why every student deserves that same experience no matter who they're represented by. Um, Who's making decisions regarding the outcome of a hearing? What does their training look like? And have they been trained to actively disrupt their implicit bias, not just recognize that it exists? Um, We have to move beyond that. And, And I mentioned this earlier, but what's your office's honest reputation on your campus? Find the truths in that, and then actively work on addressing those issues, not just scratching the surface for changing how your office appears to others, but really changing the work that led to that reputation on a day-to-day basis. Um, And this is a big one for me: is a is a poorly written appeal given the same weight in consideration as a well-written appeal with the same core point. And I think that that's like you know when you think about folks who oftentimes um, there's so much intersection between identities. Um, And I think about like our first gen students, for example, in our first-gen students of color. And these issues are all interconnected, but I think about when a student has surpassed their parents' level of education, and now they might not have that person to ask, hey, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, church leader, uh, cousin, whatever. Um, They don't have that person to ask, can you read over this appeal for me? or maybe they don't have an attorney secretly ghostwriting it in the background because they don't have access to those resources. Are they still given that same chance? Like we have to look at that and think about that. So are we stuck that this isn't a well-written appeal, what a joke? Or are we still thinking like, wow, like maybe I can call the student in and have a conversation with them because I think I know what they're getting at, but I want to talk with them about it further. Like how are we responding to these issues? Um, this is a big one too. Are we assigning our staff of color specific cases? So are we having other people hold these conversations that we don't want to have ourselves? Why do we feel ill-fitted to respond to um, certain cases? So we I mean, we really need to inspect these things. I have a couple more. Okay. Um, do folks in your office have officer in their title? Why was that title chosen? And does that truly represent the work that we do as educators? So um, we have so much work to be doing and we need to ask ourselves these questions honestly. And when we arrive at an answer, especially one that challenges us, instead of walking away, we need to work towards a solution to address these issues. Um, And then when we think we fixed it, we need to revisit that again and ask ourselves these questions. we can quantify some of these issues by pulling reports, assessing issues by doing focus groups, and then just genuinely being introspective and dismantling our process to build them back up to be more just and thoughtful. Um, And I hope that we can do this work together. I'm in this with you all for real. And, um, you know, I want us to be able to look at our processes and feel proud and to feel confident. And if they are questioned that we really, we're not trying to make the situation right by what we're saying, but that it was right and we can reflect on that and honestly say that. And one of the things that I think about sometimes while we don't ask ourselves these questions, when I um, did my master's thesis, it was on transgender student inclusion through student affairs support services. And one of the things that I realized in my research was that some of the reason why that research exists is because if, or does not exist, is because if folks had the answers to some of these questions, they'd actually have to respond to that and make changes. And I think that's the same with why some of these questions aren't asked on a regular basis you know, it's work to change these processes. It's work to um, realize that you have a deficit and, you know, I'm not perfect. I ask myself these questions all the time and there are times that I fall short. Um, and I have to actively work on that. That's my responsibility. And that's not just like for me to wait for my supervisor to do a, um, to do an eval, right? And to right. and identify that as an issue. So it must not be an issue. Well, who's your supervisor? You know what I mean? We all have issues. So we need to be working through this together. And um, if anyone wants to talk about that, I know I, I put that call out or call in in my uh, post um, on the ASCA Women uh, and Student Conduct Group, but I really mean that for anyone. Um, so... Yeah, we have a lot of work to do. I mean,
0: I, I mean, literally, I truly believe that people will be able to take the, everything that you have said and hopefully let that be the place where they start. You have proposed some phenomenal questions that I think will really, 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 if they already haven't, be the foundation for change to start. And I want to encourage people to be comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. Get comfortably yeah. uncomfortable, you know? And yeah. I think when people start doing that, then we're going to to definitely see, see a change in what we need. Well, I truly appreciate this. So I always ask people on our show, and I would ask you... What is something that's been giving you life? Is it a book, a song, anything that you'd recommend to others, a podcast, your favorite podcast, i.e. my podcast? since you know, I'm just going to throw that out there and say that's what it is. It probably isn't. But, you know, what is something <laughs> that you're doing? I don't, I mean, I've been on the cricket making bandwagon, cutting vinyl and putting vinyl and everything. So what is something that you were doing that you would recommend to people?
1: Yeah, so um I'm rereading one of my favorite books and it's actually it's right along lines uh, right along the lines of this conversation and our work. And that is The Meaning of Freedom and Other Difficult Dialogues by my girl Angela Davis. Um it's a collection of 12 speeches by Angela Davis. It is timely, even though it was written in 2012, I think. Um, Hopefully I got that right. But 2012, and it's in in the essays that are in there, essentially the speeches are from before then. But so it wasn't like she wrote it in 2011 and then published it. They're from over time, but they still speak to everything that's going on today. So I'm rereading that, trying to have an open lens, trying to question the things that I do in my day-to-day life. Um, and just be thoughtful about that. She really writes about intersectional issues and just breaks things down in a way that really, because she breaks it down so simply, it does give me hope that these things can change because they're not as complex as we make them to be. Um, and yeah, I just, you know, anytime I read anything by her, I'm I'm like a, I'm a fangirl. Um, but Anytime I read something by Angela Davis, I mean, it, there is a piece, that's like not the most uplifting read, but it does make me think that like change is possible. And I know that it is. So, um, that's giving me life right now. And then of course there are other little things like, um, Little Fires Everywhere. Oh, they're so good. I, I finished it. I, I, I finished went to it have too. A season. Oh, I, um, I literally started watching it again. So. Yeah, it's just, you know, those little, sometimes we have to take those little things and, and also find times for time for joy. And right. there's a show that I watch that like, no, I don't think anyone watches. So I'm going to give it a shout out. So hopefully it gets continued on. But Songland, it is a really good really? show. It's okay. like basically the show where folks, um, songwriters pitch a song to an artist and it, it's a good one. So I think yeah, it's, on it's flute, right? Light.
0: Is it yeah, on Hulu you can okay.
1: access it on Hulu? Um, it's not a Hulu show, but you can access it through there. It's an NBC show, but I watch it on Hulu because I don't have actual cable so or TV so. Yeah. So Hulu, but yeah, that's a, that's a good one. It's just lighthearted. So if you need that type of break and maybe reading the meaning of freedom and other difficult dialogues won't be the break and the joy that you need right now, uh, that shows a
0: good one. Okay. Well, wonderful. Well, Michaela, where can people find you if they want to be connected with you? Um, are you on the interwebs? Are you on the, the social medias and the Twitters? Are you not? I always like to ask.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, um, You know, I'm not super active on Facebook. So it's interesting that I posted that (laughs) post and that led to this because I literally, I usually do not log on to Facebook, but you can find me on Instagram. It's really easy at Michaela Falwell. You can find me on Facebook still Michaela Falwell. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't use Twitter. I think I, I have a Twitter, but gosh, it, the last thing I probably posted was like from 2016. So it's um, fine. you can visit me there, but I'm not going to respond. So sorry about that. And then of course you can email me on my work email. It's, um, M-A- Falwell. That's F as in Frank, A-L-W-E-L-L at UC ucdavis.edu. I look forward to connecting with folks. And I really mean that. And one thing that I want to make really clear is that I know that at our core, we all entered into this work because we care and love about love students. And, you know, I think that's even more clear from the fact that we didn't come in to college thinking, wow, I want to be a student affairs practitioner. Like that's just not our calling. But at some point we had some positive experience where we want to serve students and so I know that we can work together to do this work to make change Um, and I really want to call folks in like let's have these conversations even if they're difficult it's not about you it's about serving our students and moving forward and it is about bettering yourself so I guess in that sense that is about you but it's not um, something that's like I don't want folks to think that they have a deficit. So that's why they have to do this work. We all have to do this work, no matter what identities we hold. And, um, and I really hope that we can do this together. Like, I'm excited to connect with folks. Please, please, please write with me. Or if I said something that you're struggling with, let's connect. Let's talk about this further. And I so appreciate the invitation to be on this podcast. Um, to have this platform. So thank you so much for the invite and for your wisdom that you shared today too, your job oh, knowledge.
0: I, you know, I'm yeah. just here to, to help. And I think collectively we work together. Um, I learn every day. I learn from, from you. I learn from people. I think what I enjoy about doing this podcast more than anything else is that for every person that I interact with, I can learn something to take something from. And so that's why I'm so passionate about these episodes, this podcast, and just continuing this conversation. Um, again, I appreciate you. As always, I'll put all of your contact information in the, in okay. the description box so people can like click and stuff just so yeah. they have it. Um, and I mean, you, I, I really have no, no closing. Like you said everything. Like I, I'm just going to end it there. Like take care in the cool. time of coronavirus and we will stay tuned and see everyone next time.
1: Yeah. And take care of yourselves, y'all. All
0: right. Bye. Bye. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by Alexandra Hughes. That's me. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and become more visible to our podcasting community. If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, feel free to reach out to us by email at ascapodcast at gmail.com or On Twitter at ASCA Podcast. If you'd like to connect with me on Twitter, you can find me at Alexandra's View. Talk to us. We talk back.